Welcome back to the Global Digital Banker. My name is Adele Grassoff and this is RFI Group's Insight Back podcast focused on key trends, thought leadership and best practice within the fast-growing and dynamic world of digital banking. In this episode, we take a look at the leapfrog effect of banking within developing markets and share a great example of innovation within financial inclusion occurring in Africa. Guests include Dare Okujo, CEO at MFS Africa, and Melissa Guzzi, founder and managing partner at Arbor Ventures. Sarah Hollinshead, our group head of content, caught up with Dare Okujo to discuss financial inclusion across Africa, overcoming barriers to usage beyond geographic remoteness, and the opportunities and future learnings for MFS Africa from being backed by a China-based VC. So I'm really pleased today to be joined by Dare Okuju, who has a long career in mobile payment strategy and is the founder and CEO of MFS Africa. So welcome, Dare. Thank you. A bit about MFS Africa, you're the largest digital payments network in Africa and you connect over 170 million mobile wallets through over 100 partners across 55 markets. So there are some impressive stats there. So can you share the sort of catalyst behind creating MFS Africa and what's the ultimate goal for you? Sure. So uh, just before creating MFS Africa, I was working at MTN Group where I was leading the deployment of what is now known as MTN Mobile Money. Mm. And as I was doing that, I realized that the potential of mobile money, what we were doing, uh, was much bigger than you know, domestic person-to-person transfer, which was the key goal at that moment. I'm talking about 2009, 2010 mm. now. And for me, there was going to be, down the line, the need to connect all these local closed-loop systems, eco- uh, ecosystem, to each other and to the rest of the digital economy. And that's really what we're trying to do at MFS. So the idea is to create this one Pan-African network of networks that will allow users, consumers, and merchants in Africa to send money and receive money from each other digitally, but also open up the world and connect this to the rest of the world, whether it's in Europe, US, Asia, and so on and so forth. Our immediate you know, short-term goal is to reach 400 million people uh, onto the hub. And, uh, but beyond that, the idea is really that you know, anyone with a mobile phone, with a wallet attached to it, should be able to transact with everyone else in the world. Mm. So you're really targeting that unbanked population in, in specific areas. That's true, which is the core core market of mobile money itself. So yeah. most mobile money users are previously unbanked or underbanked people. Um, and our idea is to really enhance their experience of the mobile money. So today, you know, you can do domestic person-to-person with your wallet. The idea is to connect that to a much broader uh, ecosystem of services. Mm. Yeah. So I want to talk more about financial inclusion and your sort of thoughts on, on where that's going and what you can be doing a bit later on. But first, you wanted to talk about you uh, becoming the first African fintech funded by a China-based VC. So massive congratulations. It's Thank awesome. You. So you've received $4.5 million in a Series B funding round. So tell us about that journey and, and your experiences when seeking investment funding. Yeah, sure. The company was seeded by a bunch of angel investors. Yeah. Uh, from a wide international range, actually, goes all the way from Denmark to to, to Japan um, at the sea level. And a lot of these people were in my class in business school. So that's kind of where it started, (laughs) you know. And I think that has always helped us plug into the international market. So 
And even when as we move into broadening the team, we are 50 people. We have about 20 nationalities today in the team. Yeah. So although our route and our, I would say our focus has been on Africa, our perspective has always been global. And in this fundraising, when we started it, we call on that same network that we have to, to introduce us to like-minded investors who will be able to understand our story, understand what we're trying to achieve and support us into that. And it's in that, you know, in the course of those conversations that loan partners and Goodwill invest. And so it was, it was natural that Goodwill will, will back us. For loan, it was a bit different because initially when we came across them, we... You know, it was going to be their first investment in Africa, and, and it was a bit far from <laughs> distance. But as the process went on, you know, they were becoming more and more familiar with the company, and we have also kept growing the company during that time. And I think they were particularly interesting in seeing almost a replay of what happened in China. You know, as we see China today as one country, but it's actually yeah. an ag- aggregation of many different ecosystems and. Africa is 54 countries, mm. although people tend to talk about just one Africa. And I think there's a lot of parallels and similarities on how you know larger ecosystem of payment uh, can be built from fragmented pieces uh, that we see now in Africa that China has gone through. And Loon and the, the individuals uh, in working at Loon Partners have, have seen that and mm. saw that parallel. So we're very glad to have them as a partner now and we'll definitely be leaning on them to do some of those lessons and and as we travel the same the same road or similar road in Africa. Ah, that's really interesting and it's fantastic that there is investment in financial inclusion, particularly in this region. So can you talk more about what this investment can really aid you to do? As far as we are concerned, access to financial services, it's a human right. Yeah. It's a fundamental human right. Mm. And, and that's the one thing that mobile money has been able to do. And Beyond the mobile money or the mobile that we all tend to focus on when we talk about mobile money, it's really a network of agents, close to 2 million people now who are digitalizing cash in Africa for the mobile networks, the mobile money, which we are connected to, which allow us now to create a larger ecosystem. So when it comes to financial inclusion for us, it's important that we continue or the industry as a whole continue to offer services to people who just move into the formal financial services beyond the person-to-person that we're seeing now. So that means also creating a market for financial service providers. Mm. Right? They just go to one extreme. If you're an insurance company and you know, you, you've been servicing the traditional market in Africa, that's certainly mean maybe five to six countries, you know, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, the usual suspects. And that will mean in a very traditional way, you know, life insurance, some savings product, maybe a bit of pension, and sometimes a bit of health insurance. Now, we understand that to service new hundreds of million people will require some experimentation and will require working some less travel roads. But if you put yourself in the shoes of that financial institution, it might not be that easy to experiment, mm-hmm. you know, and also to choose whether you experiment in Zambia or should we go and experiment in Liberia? Or is it in Mozambique that you should do that as well? What this investment will help us to build on top of this network of primarily mobile money to create that layer for financial institutions that they can tap into just one connection and be able to service a much, much bigger network. Mm. So if you're an insurance company now and you work with MFS Africa, you could start with some maybe, you know, experimenting, say in Malawi, just to pick one. But it takes no effort, really, or limited effort to scale across our network to 170 million people 
if you are satisfied with that experimentation. Or you could decide to skip altogether the experimentation rule and you could, riding on MFS rails, design a product for mm. 170 million people, 200 million people. So when, as far as financial inclusion is concerned, we believe, you know, we've, with what we've already built, with this investment, we'll be able to make it much, much easier for financial institutions to work with us to reach hundreds of millions of people, to move to, to scale. Mm. We have heard a lot of good stories about, you know, some small-scale pilots. And those are good stories, but we need to move beyond good stories <laughs> and to reach really scale. Yeah. And that's really what we are trying to build, at least provide the enabling environment for that kind of scale across mm. Africa. And I mean, you've already revolutionized the lives of millions of people that, that haven't had access to traditional banking services. That group of people beyond geographic remoteness, what are the barriers, the main barriers for those customers to be reaching financial products in Africa? I think in many ways, it has just been the way the products have been positioned as well. A lot of people just, just think this is not for them, you know. Okay. And take saving as an example. Saving is a bank product, but you just want to put money away. And people find that other ways to put money away mm-hmm. without going to the banking wall. So I think people have always found different ways to, to manage risk. Which so is how really- do you overcome that then? How do you overcome that consumer sentiment that it's... Some things just aren't necessary. They just don't relate to traditional finance. When you make it easier for people to get it. I'll give you an example. A lot of things about mobile money, immediately people put it in the category that it should be lower cost. Yes, because by design, many people in the industry, including MFS, we are driving for lower cost. Mm. But in many ways, the product that we are creating is a superior product from a convenience point of view, from an easiness of use and access point of view. So... We have developed a product with Alliance, for instance, in Cote d'Ivoire, where you can automate savings on your phone and decide to save daily, weekly, or monthly. People could do that before, but by putting it on their fingerprint and that they could just sit here and decide and change their mind tomorrow about it and so on, without having to go through all the hassle of the informal market, let alone the formal banking system, it is actually a superior product that you could almost charge a premium for. So why I'm, all this is to say the access to financial service, what, it, what was keeping people away, in my opinion, is just the right product. It's not just the remoteness and so on. So on. Of course, you have to create the access, yeah. but you also have to find the right product. And the right product does not mean the cheap product. It means the right product. It means something that takes into account the behavior of the people, mm. what takes into account what's going on in their environment and so on. And that's why, again, it comes back to how we see our role in the industry. Our role in the industry is not to try even to invent what the product should be. We just think that if you live in Benin and you think you've got a great idea for 10,000 people, you should be able to do it. Mm. Yeah, and we will provide a platform for you to do it. And But if you also think like you can create a product for 10 million people across five markets, you should also be able to do it. And it's in those kind of small trees and big trees that the forests eventually get constituted. So it, it goes back to what people in the community, people living with the previously owned bank or underbank, seeing opportunities and being able to take advantage of the digital platforms that are there to create the right product for that environment. That's what needs to be done now. Mm. And have you seen kind of real economic impacts as a result of your, you know, of consumers using your products and services so far? Immediately, one of the key things that we measure is how much it costs. We, we know the convenience and the better use is there. But moving money across Africa is known to be the most 
expensive in the world. It costs somewhere between 17 and 20% of the face value compared to about 7% on a global average. We made a public that goal. We want to bring the Africa average to a single digit percentage by 2020. And we're already seeing that in our top 20 corridor, our average is already about 7%. Mm. So we're already substantially lower than what the average of the market is. What we're also seeing is a lot of repeat use that is much more, much frequent than you will expect from money transfer. We're not entirely sure what that means yet, whether maybe people are not using this for migrant workers' remittance. is more like from some cross-border trade being used right. to settle this. Or it could just be that instead of waiting for the end of the month for three months to make one trip to the agency to send money, people are sending it as they're getting it. It's so interesting and I think particularly highlighting what the opportunities are in this market, looking mm-hmm. at it as a kind of similar to the Asian market. Yeah. Um, it's fantastic what you're doing, not only for the financially unincluded, um, but also providing those opportunities for other businesses to have access to those consumers. Um, so it's an incredible model. I guess sort of what's next, what's upcoming next for MFS Africa? Well, it's exactly what you're saying. It's really changing the mindset and the view from financial inclusion on bank to just consumers. Right. You know, you know, they support Manchester United too. They want the last latest songs of Rihanna. They want to buy a book on Amazon. <laughs> just global citizen, connected like you and I. Yeah. And there, there should be absolutely no reason why if... You, they made the effort of connecting themselves to a digital payment system or mobile money that they cannot take full advantage of it, which mm-hmm. means that they cannot buy on iTunes that song that they like, you know, that they cannot buy that book or that they cannot put up a website. So whatever, you know, coffee, clothes, whatever, and get paid into mm-hmm. that money, that it becomes how an American or a British buy their product should not be a problem. They should be able, even if they are in Rwanda, to receive that money, to just unlock their lives yeah. and let them connect to the global economy like we all do. And we believe you have a cell phone and you register it to have a mobile wallet account. You shouldn't have to do anything more. Mm. You know, The rest should be the industry, the players to come and be able to work with you. And you could be a consumer in that game. You could also be a merchant. And you shouldn't have to be excluded from this because you were born in... Maputo or, you know, in Harare or, or in Blanta in Malawi. Mm. So that, that's really what, what keeps us going. And in a way, it's quite because of the, the very fast emergence of the mobile market. It's almost like now you're targeting these consumers. They're sort of going to leapfrog some of the other developed markets in terms of innovation because they're going to be very mobile led mm. as opposed to having gone through online cards absolutely and i mean and that is already for many many people in africa the first screen is the mobile screen Mm, so yeah what we're talking about payment is also true for video consumption is true for commerce so that is given and and it's actually quite fascinating that when i come back to when i come to europe sometimes how in a way it feels awkward (laughs) and backwards how how little you know mobile is used actually and compared to you know busy streets of uh, Dar es Salaam or Lagos where the average person in Africa is less than 25 years old and he uses his phone a lot when you start with that in mind it changes a little bit the dynamic and it seems less extraordinary what we're trying to achieve Mm. we'll have to invent many things because we're not like copying or we're not following the same path that has been 
traveled before and so on. And it is exciting mm. that we can create a whole new world in, the, in that sense. Yeah, that was brilliant. I feel like we could stay here and talk about this forever, <laughs> but uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Darry, for sure. sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Chloe James, our Group Media Director, spoke with Melissa Guzzi to uncover the types of technologies on the rise across Asia and the evolution of FinTech 2.0. Chloe James here for RFI Group's Global Digital Banker podcast. Delighted to be chatting with Melissa Guzzi all the way over in Hong Kong for Arbor Ventures. Um, Melissa, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. This is a great chat that we're going to have today, and it's all around the leapfrog effect of fintechs in developing and emerging markets, which is such a, a fun theme. And I know that both you and I are very passionate about fintechs. As, as a business, as Arbor Ventures does, you invest in financial services technology companies. When you're doing that, what are some of the key attributes that you look for and, and that you think, yeah, that company's got great potential, they're going to have rapid growth, and that they might even leapfrog a more traditional provider? Well, it's, it's a great question, and, and most people think that our analysis would start with the market opportunity, but actually our analysis starts with the quality of the entrepreneur and the team uh, with the idea, because great entrepreneurs can always weave their way through complex markets, which financial services falls in that category. So first, we look for great entrepreneurs with ideas that can actually scale over the long term. And the second part of that is we look for market opportunities and companies that actually can be dominant in their specific market. And when you take a look at the Arbor portfolio, it's really divided up into two categories. Those companies that are dominant in their specific market or those companies that really do have world-class technology. But either, regardless, it all starts with the quality of the entrepreneur. I love that response. And I speak to so many entrepreneurs. I'm very lucky in, in my role to be able to do that. And I, I think it's really interesting. It, it has to be a great person, doesn't it? Because no matter the idea, if the person's not quite right, it's probably going to fall flat on its face. Would you agree? Yes. And it's it's also because startups have so many challenges every day and people always only hear about the glorified stories of success. But those entrepreneurs who really have risked everything and really dedicated their lives to their idea are going to go through tremendous challenges. And therefore, it really comes down to the characteristics and what drives the entrepreneur if money is the only single driver, you rarely see success. It's got to be an absolute passion to change the world or change the industry that they're in. Absolutely. Don't do it for the money. I've, I have heard that before. It's, it's 100% true. Now, Arbor Ventures is, is specifically focused in Asia where we, we know that there are already a lot of pretty amazing financial services offerings, particularly in payments, um, identity management, and other areas like that. What do you see as the key characteristics of fintech propositions that are that are really driving that innovation in markets across the region you look after? Well, we're very lucky here because uh, we actually have the world's fastest growing middle class. By 2020, it's going to be more than 50% of the world's population. And additionally, uh, Asia is not uh, burdened by legacy systems, very much like your, uh, Europe or the US are. So we have a unique opportunity to back great entrepreneurs who really want to solve some of the region's problems that have to do a lot with just changing macro trends. And therefore, they can implement new technologies, not have the burden of legacy systems. So the opportunities still are around payments, identity management, fraud, cyber, you know, insurance, uh, everything that really still you know, we identified as part of the financial service ecosystem, there's still a long way to go. 
And there's not one particular sector where you can say it's done and over. There's no more you know, investments to be made or innovation to happen. Mm. It is interesting to really hear about all the different types of innovation going across, you know, payments, identity management, fraud, as you mentioned, another great one to highlight there. I know that you haven't picked out sort of major ones that you can see as being successes, but just when you're looking across your portfolio, which technologies do you see kind of rising up and really the ones that are going to deliver that fantastic impact? Oh, we have favorite areas like everyone, but clearly point of self-financing has been a very successful area for Arbor Ventures. Mm. Anything related to fraud, uh, we very much like the more and more the, the world transacts across borders, the more fraud that happens. It's, there's a tremendous uh, opportunity to solve those problems. I, I think uh, additionally, you know, alternative lending, it's, gr- it's growing up very differently in Asia than it is uh, in the U.S. or in Europe. It's out of necessity versus more of consolidation of debt. And then... Uh, I think, you know, insurance, um, we're clearly significantly behind here as far as offerings and and pricing mechanisms for people in the region. And so we're going to continue to see, you know, opportunities there as well. So, as I said, there's, you know, there's not one area that's that's finished. Uh, There's just a lot of opportunities still to come. Yeah, amazing opportunity there. Insurance, a fantastic example. I mean, that's an area that's absolutely right for disruption and and certainly a fintech can get in there and, and take a piece of that. We were at Money 2020 in Singapore last week. Something that I noticed which was really interesting was that blockchain got knocked off that most talked about list and things that were kind of rising up were AI, machine learning. We heard from Ant Financial that they were already deploying AI within their business. What's your view on potential when it comes to AI specifically in financial services and, and are Arbor Ventures looking at AI? So, you know, five years from now, we're not going to even be talking about AI because it's going to be an integral part of every single business. And I, I think we've had this philosophy here at Arbor Ventures for a long time. Uh, machine learning is just you know, is going to be like drinking water. It's something that every business is going to do every day or every human does every day. It's going to, it's an integral part of our life. So I'm not surprised that uh, this year, particularly AI has risen to the top because I think more and more companies are actually talking about their, their programs and what they've actually implemented now, not only in the POC phase, but actual uh, live implementations. That's not to say that the blockchain is less important. It's just further out when you're looking at these large companies is really having uh, real life examples that they're implementing every day, both important technologies, but clearly for us here at Arbor Ventures, AI has been on our radar, will continue to be on our radar. And and there's no end in sight as to the implications of how much AI can change these businesses. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see AI in the fintech space, but we are seeing traditional organizations really getting to grips with with the AI space. On that, I just wondered your view between traditional organizations and fintechs. Do you think it's a battleground or do you think that there is becoming more and more opportunity to partner and work together if you were to kind of look out over the next 12 months? Well, we'd like to say that FinTech 1.0 was where entrepreneurs thought, we're going to replace banks. <laughs> and then FinTech 2.0 is like, okay, we're not replacing banks. We're partnering with banks. Mm, okay. And I think the realization that we've had is neither one is really working that well. <laughs> you know, I mean, banks have been buying software for a very long time. And if you have some software that's necessary to their business model, you're going to be in a traditional enterprise sales cycle. And that hasn't changed for the last 20 or 30 years. 
I think uh, where we're seeing the most success in uh, venture capital related to fintechs are companies that actually don't need to partner with the banks at all, whose businesses are completely independent. Uh, that's actually one business model. As I said, if you want a traditional enterprise SaaS model, sure. But, you know, the sales cycles are still going to be 24 to 36 months. So, you know, I think what we're seeing in the insurance sector is a little bit different. We're seeing the reinsurers actually lend their balance sheets, lend their regulatory approval, and actually almost facilitate the disruption of insurers by partnering with insure tech startups to go directly to the end market. Fantastic insight there. And it, yeah, it will certainly be interesting to see them work together. I certainly see a, a lot more partnership. Melissa Guzzi, thank you so much for coming on the Global Digital Banking Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode this week. To view the show notes from this episode, head to globaldigitalbanker.com. To get in touch with us, check out our Instagram, Global Digital Banker, Twitter at GDB Podcast, or on Facebook under Global Digital Banker Podcast. If you're interested in being a part of the show or would like to let us know what you think of this episode, email us at gdbpodcast at rfigroup.com.